Good morning. I was kind of hoping Andy would do like a jump twirly thing like Nate did. Yeah, yeah, it ended up down here. Is that what it is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Lincoln Brian loves North Point. We pray for you and just are so excited about the impact you're having here in North Lincoln. I love Andy and probably the best compliment I could give him as I would love it if he was my pastor. And I don't really say that very often. Uh, so very excited to be here. I don't believe there's anything more important in your walk with God than your view of God. A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I do think that's true, which raises a question. What is your view of God? Maybe more to the point of our discussion this morning, where does that view of God come from? In April of 1992, Chris McCandless wandered into the Alaskan wilderness. He survived there for over 100 days and eventually died in an old abandoned schoolhouse. John Krakauer wrote up his story in a book called The Wild, uh, Into the Wild, and then Sean Penn made it into a movie. After the book came out and the movie came out, there was a lot of criticism of Chris. People referred to him as a spoiled rich kid that didn't care about anybody but himself, and how could he do that to his poor, dear parents? That went on over about 20 years until his sister, Corinne, couldn't take it anymore. So she wrote a follow-up book called The Wild Truth. And in that book, she chronicled the psychological abuse, the physical abuse, the emotional abuse that they experienced as kids growing up in that home. She said Chris had wandered into the wilderness to try to get away from it, find someplace quiet, and try to process life. In her book, she talks about one Easter Sunday morning. She was nine years old, Chris was 12. They woke up that morning to a violent altercation between their mom and dad, down on the main level, which she said wasn't unusual. They quietly got up, got dressed, snuck out of the house, and walked to church. She described church as one of their few places of safety and refuge. She talks about listening to the pastor describe God. And she found herself wondering, is God like the preacher is describing, or is God more like my dad? It's a very perceptive and very important question. Every single person in the room has been raised somewhere by someone. Whether that was a two-parent family, a single-parent family, whether it was in and out of foster homes or raised in an orphanage, Whether that was a Christian home, just a religious home, or a completely secular home. Everyone was raised somewhere by someone, and that environment significantly influenced your view of God, whether you understand that or not. I have a friend who grew up in a Christian home, 
His dad was a pastor. His mom was a fairly well-known Bible teacher and writer. He was the last of several children, and not only was he unexpected, but he was unwanted. And for whatever reason, his mom felt it necessary to remind him on a regular occasion he was unwanted. He said she would break out in violent explosions and beat him regularly. She said there were times when he slammed, she slammed his head against the wall so hard it broke the drywall, while his dad did nothing to stop it. It's not surprising then that he left home as an atheist. He actually went to college for the express purpose of proving there is no God. Today, my friend is a pastor, but he'd be the first one to tell you it's been a long, hard journey trying to sort out his view of God. What happens is we leave home with a view of God. That then becomes the lens through which we both interpret the scripture and interpret the events and circumstances of life. I was meeting with a group of pastors this last winter, and we were talking about how to rightly interpret the Old Testament. And one of the pastors said, you know, most of my life I've always seen God in the Old Testament. It's just an angry, wrathful, judgmental God. And he said, it's only more recently I have begun to see God as a more kind, generous, patient, patient, compassionate God in the Old Testament. So I asked him, why do you think you saw God as so angry and judgmental in the Old Testament? He didn't hesitate a moment. He said, because my dad was that way. And I thought God was like my dad. Several weeks ago, I was preaching at Lincoln Berean out of Genesis chapter 22. It's the story where God calls Abraham to offer Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice. It's a very intense text. And I've preached it enough over the years that I know there's certain people sitting in the seats that are absolutely appalled by that story. They think God's mean, they think God's abusive, they think God's demanding. They're just absolutely appalled that God would ask such a thing in Abraham, of Abraham. But what happens is it starts with a messed up view of God. That's the lens through which you view that story, and it only serves to confirm God really is like that. But it's also the lens through which we interpret the circumstances of life. Life can be very difficult. Life can be very confusing. Life can be very painful. And if our view of God is messed up, it's the lens through which we interpret the circumstances of life, and it only serves to confirm to us that God is like that. And our view just gets more and more confused, and we just struggle more and more. I would say many Christians... I might even bump that up to most Christians. If they were to be completely honest, would say that their Christian life simply hasn't been what they hoped it would be. In some ways, they've been disappointed. I'm clinging to my ticket to heaven. 
but I've never really experienced the abundant life Jesus promised. Never really experienced that intimate walk with Jesus that my soul longs for. Now, there may be many reasons for that, but often it roots back to things you experienced in your family of origin that got projected onto God that become a roadblock to experiencing the life your soul longs for. I'm going to also suggest that many Christians formulate their view of God more from the circumstances of life than from the pages of the Bible. And if that's true, that's always a recipe for trouble. So just to be clear this morning, I'm not saying you might have learned something about God from your family of origin. I'm saying you did. The question is, what did you learn? The reason I say that is because that's how God has designed family to work. So that's what we want to talk about. If you have a Bible, we might as well start right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Either that's true or it's not true. But if it's true, that changes everything. If you're just here by chance through some sort of random process, then I guess we're free to make up whatever we want about things like marriage and family and sexuality. But if the first five words of the Bible are true, then there's a creator. And he is created with design and purpose. And we should respect that by understanding and following his design and purpose. We move it then up to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. If you started chapter 1, verse 1, and just start reading through the text, there's a pretty consistent pattern in how the text is written. Until you get to verse 26, then the pattern changes. This is the first time we're told that a creature has been made in the image of God. At the core of what it means to be made in the image of God is captured in the fact that God describes himself with plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image. That's somewhat confusing because... The Bible teaches that there's one God. But it's one God made up of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We refer to this as the Trinitarian nature of God. Now we could spend the rest of the day talking about God as a Trinity And there would never be one single moment where you would say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. 
it's just so mysterious. It's so far beyond our ability to comprehend. But it is highly significant. Most of the attributes that we would cling to in our hour of need are relational attributes. Take, for example, the most obvious one, that is God is love. Our belief is not that at some point in time, God became loving. It's that God is love. That's his essence. That's at the core. That's who he is. Love actually originates and flows out of God. How could that be if he was all alone? Well, because he wasn't exactly alone. God lived in community with himself. The Father loved the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father. They love one another, they celebrate one another, they enjoy one another in this beautiful relationship that has defined God forever. As a matter of fact, when the New Testament talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about a duration of life. It's talking about a quality of life. This is the life that is defined God forever. Theologians sometimes refer to this relationship with a Greek word, parachorosis. It's the word from which we get our English word, choreography. Theologians refer to it as the dance of God. For all eternity, God the Father celebrated the Son, the Son celebrated the Spirit, the Spirit celebrates the Father in this beautiful, loving dynamic relationship called the dance of God. To be made in the image of God is literally to be made with the capacity to join the dance. That is absolutely stunning that God made you uniquely in such a way to join the dance. This is literally what you were made for. This is what your soul is longing for. Your soul's never going to be satisfied until it experiences that intimacy with God. We move on to verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you were to turn verse 27 into your English teacher, you get it back with a big red R, meaning redundant, too repetitive, you know, clean it up. But it's actually a Hebrew technique in order to focus what God is saying. There's three statements, and the point of focus is at the beginning of each statement. First one, God created in his image. Second one, in his image he created. Third one, male and female he created them. So God created in his image and somehow that's going to be pictured or reflected through our sexuality as male and female. Verse 28 
God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every once in a while, someone will ask me, where does the Bible talk about sex? And my answer is always page one. It's actually the very first command of the Bible. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It was God's idea. It ends then in verse 31. God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We move on to chapter 2, verse 7. The best way to understand Genesis chapter 2 is to understand it doesn't go forward in the story. It goes backwards in the story. It actually goes back into day 6 and, and looks at how day 6 unfolded. So verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I think when you come out of Genesis chapter 1, God seems so big. He just created the entire universe with a spoken word. He's so big, he feels unknowable. How could you know a God that big? But you get into Genesis chapter 2, and it becomes very intimate. I'm going to go so far as to say uncomfortably intimate. One of the ways you can track the theology in these early chapters of Genesis is by noticing the names for God. In Genesis chapter 1, it's always the Hebrew Elohim. It's the only name used of God. It's the big God. It's the creator God. But in chapter 2, verse 7, for the first time in the Bible, we're introduced to Lord God. And you'll notice Lord is in all capital letters, which is always indicative in your English Bible of a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. Yahweh is the intimate God. It's the personal God. It's the God that makes covenants and promises with his people. So all of a sudden, this big God has become very intimate. When the text says that the Lord God formed, it's a Hebrew word used to describe a potter with a piece of clay. This is completely different than the rest of creation. It's as if God gets down on one knee and begins to form Adam from the dust of the ground. It's very personal. It's very intimate to get him just exactly the way he wanted him. And then it's as if God takes his lips and places them on Adam's nostrils and breathes into him the breath of life. Literally, it says, and Adam became a living soul. It would be theologically correct to say life is defined by being filled with the very breath of God. That is a very intimate, almost uncomfortable imagery. 
We move forward then to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. For us as a reader, that's somewhat stunning. For the first time in all eternity, something is not good. So what is it that's not good? That's also confusing. Because at the end of chapter 1, we were told, day 1 ended with a very good. So somewhere in day 6, it's not good. And God's going to do something to turn it into a very good. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We don't have to guess at what the not good is. Adam was alone. I don't really like that translation, a helper, because it's just confusing to us. It almost sounds like what Adam needed was a little helper to go along behind him, pick up his socks, cook him some food. That's not what that word means. It's actually a big, strong word. It's a word God uses to describe himself. He's the helper of Israel. Carries much more the idea of being an ally. I also don't care for the translation, a helper suitable for him. To me, the way we use that term in English, it sounds like, eh, she'll do. You know, she's suitable. Most of your Bibles footnote the alternative corresponding to. That's much closer to the Hebrews. Someone like him with whom he could share an intimate relationship. Immediately, the text goes into the naming of the animals. For us as readers, that's very frustrating because I really don't care. I don't care what you call a hippopotamus. I don't care what you call a giraffe. Poor Adam's alone, pouting under the tree. Somebody needs to do something to help this guy. But the point that's being made, no other creatures that God had made in his image with whom Adam could share this deep relationship. As a matter of fact, that's how that section ends. The end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Every time I read that passage, I have to chuckle a little bit because I think for us as men, we would say arguably that was the greatest creative moment in history when God made woman. 
and Adam slept through the whole thing. <laughs> Some of you ladies are thinking, that sounds about right. <laughs> but it's very curious. Why do we need to know that? And even more curious, it's repeated. He tells us twice that he slept. There's actually a very significant reason. It's to tell us that what's about to happen wasn't Adam's idea. Adam and Eve were not two ships that passed in the night. Adam's not off under a tree going through a dating app. This isn't Adam's idea he asked God to do. He slept. God did it all. It was God's idea. It's God's design and purpose. It's also interesting that God seemed to need a rib to work with. God just created the entire universe out of nothing. Why does he need a rib? As a matter of fact, it's repeated twice. A rib taken out of Adam. Even the Hebrew word translated woman literally means out of man. So why did Adam need a rib? Or I'm sorry, why did God need a rib to work with? The other thing that's kind of curious about this is why were the man and woman created two different ways at two different times? Why didn't God just create man and woman at the same time, the same way? Do you suppose God, partway through day six, noticed Adam under a tree, pouting because he was all alone, thought, oh, what was I thinking? I've got to do something. Of course not. There must be a significant reason why. They were created two different ways at two different times. Well, let's think about what we already know. What we know is in the beginning, there was God. And everything that exists, including people made in his image, were created out of God in order to experience a deep, intimate relationship with him. Then what we know is Adam existed. And out of Adam came the woman. Specifically created to have a deep, intimate, meaningful relationship with the man. And all of a sudden, it becomes clear that the relationship between the man and the woman is meant to be a picture of the relationship that God wants to have with people made in his image. One is a, is a picture. It's an image. This love story between a man and a woman is a picture of the ultimate love story between God and people made in his image. So think of it like this. The relationship with God is the big dance. That's what you were made for. 
But that's kind of complicated. God's so big and he's a spirit. So you can't just show up to the big dance if you don't know how to dance. So we need somewhere where we experience dance lessons in a way that makes sense to us in order that we might better understand what it means to dance with God. This is God's design and purpose for marriage. God is so committed to this idea that he wants to experience an intimate relationship with you that he created marriage in the family as the place where you learn to dance through images, through pictures, through relationships in order to better understand what it means to dance with him. What else is so interesting about this is all this was before the fall. This is all before sin ever entered into the picture. This was the design. This was God's plan. That's why it says in verse 24, for this reason. That's one of those phrases that'd be really easy to just read over and not even notice. For this reason. For what reason? For the reason I just told you. That's the purpose of the creation of this love relationship between a man and a woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So obviously Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother, so this is the bigger picture. The man and the woman come together. They experience an intimate love relationship, which brings forth children. Those children grow up, so marriage turns into family. Those kids leave home. They find partners. They experience intimacy. They have children. So marriage turns into family. Family turns into more families. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But it's very important to understand that the goal was not to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with lots of people. If that's what God wanted, he just could have created a lot of people. The purpose was to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth with worshipers of God. So to do that, he creates a laboratory. He creates the place where that is supposed to happen, where a right view of God is formulated and passed on from generation to generation. I would define the purpose of the family is to perpetuate the kingdom of God from generation to generation to generation. Whatever else it is we're doing, that's what God wants. In simpler language to pass God on. Once you understand that, you see it all over in the Old Testament. So for example, think about when God was delivering the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. God himself instituted Passover. And God said, I want you to do it in families. Here's what I want you to do. 
And the text specifically says, when your children ask, why do we do this? You tell them because this is who God is and this is what God has done for us. You have it when the nation of Israel is crossing the Jordan River. God parts the river. And God tells them, I want you to pick up stones and I want you to make a monument. And the text specifically says that when the future generations see that, they will ask, what is that monument? And the parents are to tell them, this is who God is and this is what God has done for us. Perhaps the classic text is Deuteronomy chapter 6. The big concern in Deuteronomy is when the nation of Israel goes into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, that they will forget God. And so God says, I want you to remind them, to teach them, this is who I am, this is what I've done for them. As a matter of fact, it says you should do it when you rise up, you should do it when you sit down, you should do it when you're going out, you should do it when you're coming in. It's the air you breathe, it's the water you drink, it's the DNA of life in the family. Because here's the issue. You can't pass on a right view of God if you don't have a right view of God. So let's talk about that. What is your view of God? And where does that come from? Maybe you don't think God is good. Maybe you don't think God is good all the time. We sing these wonderful songs with these wonderful lyrics. But maybe you don't really think God is good all the time. Maybe you don't think God is faithful. Maybe you struggle to trust him. Maybe you don't think he's going to come through. Maybe you think that in your hour of need, when you really need him, he's not going to be there. Maybe you already feel like you've been through those moments where God let you down. You can't figure out how does this fit with this idea of God being good. Maybe you don't trust him. My definition of temptation is it's the invitation to meet a legitimate need or desire through illegitimate means. Every time you give in to temptation, it always comes down to one thing. For whatever reason in that area, with that need or desire, you've determined you can't trust God. I just don't think God's going to show up for me in this area of my life. Therefore, I need to take over. I need to be God. I need to do it myself. That's always what it is. So why don't you trust God? Why don't you think he's going to come through? Maybe you don't think God really loves you. Maybe you don't think God really cares about you. Maybe you don't think God even likes you. Maybe you're clinging to your ticket to heaven. But deep down, you struggle to believe that God could really care much about me. Maybe every time you mess up, the image in your head 
is God is rolling his eyes and he's shaking his head and he's thinking, you're such a loser. You're just a big Christian loser. You're never going to get this right. Maybe you think God's disgusted with you. He's tired of you. He's worn out with you. All you do is mess up and I've kind of had it up to here with you. Maybe you have control issues. Maybe you have authority issues. I guarantee you, if you have authority issues, you have a problem with God. Maybe you spend way too much time in the darkroom, nursing your shame and your guilt, constantly beating yourself up for blowing it again. And you're somehow trying to demonstrate to God that you're worthy of some level of forgiveness because you feel like you're such a loser and all you do is mess up. And you're sure that must be how God sees you. You got your ticket, you're getting in, but mostly you just don't think God really cares that much. Here's the deal. What if God's not like that? <laughs> what if God's not like that? What if God's not like that at all? The problem is that these beliefs are buried deep in our subconscious minds. We often don't even realize that's what we believe about God. These things just get projected onto God. And they cause us to struggle. So what do we do about that? Me telling you this morning you might have a messed up view of God doesn't fix anything. It's like going to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you're sick. That doesn't really help. I know I'm sick. That's why I came to the doctor. It's like, do something. This has been the problem. I've been a pastor for 40 years. This is one of the most common conversations I have with people. You drill down far enough and you realize that your view of God's all messed up. But that doesn't fix anything. So this is what motivated me to write God's Not Like That. Can we put a tool in people's hands for pastors, for counselors, but just for the average Christian that helps you walk through your own story in order to identify areas where your view of God may be off to help you work through a more accurate view of God? I'm so thankful to Andy and the leadership here for allowing me to come talk. I'm really thankful for them making the book available as a resource. I do believe with all my heart it can help you sort this out. I believe every person in this room can experience the abundant life Jesus promised. But for that to happen, you have to have a right view of God. You need to know the truth because it's the truth that's going to set you free. Our Father, we celebrate this morning who you are as the ideal Father. God, every one of us in this room was raised somewhere by someone and often that view gets confused. Lord, for all of us, that you would guide and direct us to take whatever steps are necessary to formulate a more accurate view of who you are. 
that we might experience the intimacy with Jesus our souls long for. Lord, that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.